This event is presented by the Council on Foreign Relations. Welcome to today's Council on Foreign Relations Young Professionals Briefing on the Future of Democracy. A bit of an urgent topic. Uh, with us today, we have a very distinguished panel of thinkers and practitioners. Yasha Monk, who is Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and Associate Professor in International Affairs at Johns Hopkins University, and a prolific writer on this subject. Radhika Prabhu, who is senior advisor to the assistant secretary and executive director of the US-Pakistan Women's Council at the US Department of State. Uh, she's also a CFR term member. Uh, and Kehinde Togun, senior director of policy and government relations at Humanity United. And he is also an adjunct lecturer at the Department of Political Science at Rutgers University and also a CFR term member. And I'm Delphine Schrank, and I'll be presiding over today's discussion. Let's start on this very big topic by first framing the issue. Um, there's broad consensus that we are more or less into 15 years of what Freedom House, the democracy watchdog, has called uh, a, a consecutive decline in global freedom, what Larry Diamond, uh, the Stanford academic, has called a democratic recession possibly because of three particular trends as I see them, emboldened authoritarian regimes on the one hand, if they're not sending tanks into the streets, they're viciously cracking down on opponents. Um, and we've seen brutal repression in a variety of countries, Belarus, Hong Kong, as of China, Myanmar, Iran, Nicaragua, Venezuela. Second of all, populists who've perhaps been elected to power and riding high on support, but um, Meanwhile, steadily eroding democratic institutions, so democratic backsliding that's more insidious. And then third, a loss of faith in democracy in advanced democracies, such as at home, the US, in Western Europe. Um, so first question to you, Yasha, I wonder if you could, you've thought an awful lot about this, written about it. How would, how would you frame the challenge? How dangerous a moment is this? How should we be thinking about this? I, well, I mean, you've, you've stolen my thunder a little bit. I think it's, it's really significant when you look at these big figures uh, from Freedom House and other places. We are in the 15th year of uh, consecutive slide away from democracy. We are in a deep democratic recession. Um, and uh, in part because uh, very populous countries like India are no longer classified as fully free. And I think for good reason, no longer classified as fully free. Um, according to the latest report from Freedom House, fewer than one in five people around the world now live in free countries. So the headline news has been very bad for the last 15 years. Um, but I think there's an additional thing to really pay attention to here, because there's a kind of way that academics used to think about democracy and its future uh, until quite recently. I was in graduate school a few years ago, but not all that many years ago. And broadly speaking, what I was taught was that, look, there's some dictatorships that appear to be quite stable. There's some very affluent countries, quite developed countries that have never been democracies and perhaps they'll never be democracies, we don't know. There's many countries where we try to establish democratic institutions and we fail. If you're a country with very little democratic history, if you're a very poor country, uh, democratic institutions will be quite unstable and sometimes they stick as they have for a long time in India, but often they won't. And so if, those Freedom House figures only came from countries that were relatively poor or only came from countries that didn't have a very long democratic history. We would say, well, that's tragic. It's tragic if 
Kenyan democracy is backsliding. It's tragic, but Thailand is further away from democracy than it was 20 years ago. But it doesn't completely change our view of what the future is likely to hold. The thing that to me has been most interesting, if you think of the 2010s as a decade, is that what I was taught in graduate school no longer seems to hold. Because even when you look at the universe of affluent countries that have a long democratic history, you see that they are in real danger of veering towards dictatorship at this point. That is true in places like Hungary, that are really no longer democratic, even though political scientists once believed them to be consolidated democracies. Um, and it is obviously true in a country like the United States, uh, whose democracy appears to be under much more immediate and serious threat than we could have imagined something like 10 years ago. And so for me, uh, one of the really important things that's going on is the rise of these authoritarian populists that are able to put real pressure on democratic institutions and democratic systems that look to be very stable until recently. Now, very briefly, one small, very cautious note of hope is that uh, I can start to see how a slightly more optimistic picture might start to emerge in the world of developed democracies. Um, some of the countries that looked like they were veering towards those kinds of challenges to democracy a few years ago uh, seem to be more stable than we might have thought. Um, Germany just had an election a few weeks ago, um, or nine days ago, um, in which the moderate parties took the overwhelming share of the vote. It does not look, though it's too early to tell, as though France is going to fall to a populist this time around. Um, uh, sort of extremist parties across Europe have declined a little bit. And of course, for he's currently down the polls, Joe Biden did end up winning against uh, Donald Trump in the 2020 elections. And then when you look internationally, you can slowly start to see some of these wannabe authoritarian figures um, uh, not being as successful in consolidating the power or sustaining the support of their citizens as we might have feared a couple of years ago. Um, Delphine Amlo, uh, where you are in Mexico, um, has had his majority in parliament curtailed in recent elections. Bolsonaro in Brazil uh, looks as though he's very likely to lose his bid for re-election. Uh, Modi still seems pretty firmly in the saddle in India, but actually he did not win some of the states he hoped to win in recent uh, uh, state elections. Um, and so you take all of that together and you can start to see how an optimistic story might emerge. I mean, it's far too early to say that scenario is likely. I think it's probably unlikely, but, but just not to depress you too much on a Tuesday night, I can start to see how an optimistic story might emerge. If we're gonna tell an optimistic story 10 years from now, I can start to see what that story might look like, but we'd have to fight very, very hard and probably get quite lucky for that to be the story we end up in. Thanks for that note of hope, <laughs> but tempered hope. Uh, Kehinde, I try. Yeah. Um, you've worked a lot specifically. We can maybe zoom in on, on your regional expertise in sub-Saharan Africa. I know you've also worked in the Middle East. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about, you know, countries that we don't often hear enough about, frankly, from, you know, Nigeria or wherever, wherever you feel like discussing where we're seeing a particular challenge and, you know, how you might frame that? 
Yeah, absolutely. Thank you uh, for having me. Uh, I think Yasha's very much correct here. I, I do think that the democratic decline is across the board. Uh, and I think from my vantage point in Sub-Saharan Africa, we see uh, countries like Nigeria with the infamous Twitter ban uh, that's now, I think, in its fifth month. Uh, and to me, those are not unique incidents because we see them in other places as well. But I, I think it's a, it's a response to a government that is in many ways inept and unable to actually respond to its citizens. And so what does it do? It says, rather than give the platform for you all to engage each other uh, and engage us, we're gonna shut down this platform uh, in the name of Nigeria's corporate existence, right? So, okay, and I think there are real issues there of a, a democratically elected government, uh, elected twice actually, right? Which could be doing things differently and has a mandate, uh, but is choosing to suppress uh, speech, uh, suppress the press, right? Uh, and then we see the reemergence uh, in many other countries of coups. So the joke used to be that coups were of the night, so 1990, right? But they're back. Like we've seen coups in Mali, we've seen coups in Guinea, we've seen coups uh, two weeks ago in uh, this a failed one in Sudan. Um, so I do think that there's this trend of citizens. Uh, and to me, these are all citizens who are wanting a response from their government and not finding it. And so uh, we see the military sort of coming in saying, let's help you find these things, right? And so like there's a receptivity from citizens to military takeovers that I think we sort of had not witnessed in a, for a while. Um, and in many cases, they're not, we should have a conversation of, is that the right way to get the change that we want? The answer is no, I, I categorically don't think that's the right way to do it. Uh, but nonetheless, there is an openness that I think not just dictators, but unresponsive leaders have created uh, where there's this uh, opportunity for change uh, through the barrel of a gun uh, that we had we thought we were past. Um, and I think the last piece I would uh, talk about is sort of this uh, around internet shutdowns more broadly, right? So like this, the Twitter ban is an offshoot of this, but in countries like Uganda during the elections, we saw where the, uh, there was a clampdown of uh, Using, using the internet because when elections are happening, we don't want people to communicate with each other. So we asked the, the private sector to shut down the internet. And there's sort of this, what I think is like, merging of private actors and government actors. And so of course the private sector wants to stay in business. So they, the answer is yes, right? So I do, do think that there's a uh, acquiescence of the private sector as well in this democratic decline that we're seeing. Um, and we may debate whether or not they have a choice, uh, but nonetheless, I do think that that's, uh, that's a practical thing that's happening. Um, so I do think that there's a greater decline, particularly in, the Sub Africa, in Sub-Saharan Africa, which is where I tend to focus. Um, to Yasha's point of glimmers of hope, I do actually have some. And I think for me, it is the citizen uh, engagement, right? Because I, I think that for what we're seeing in many countries, and we saw this in Nigeria with the NSARS movement of uh, Nigerian youth primarily who were on the street saying uh, this uh, illegal this illegal killing that you're doing uh, and this po police over-policing of us is not okay. So we're going to go out and we're going to protest. We saw this in Senegal. We saw this in other countries as well, where during a pandemic, people are literally putting their lives on the line to say we, that we're not okay with this, right? There's, uh, to your point, Delphine, of the populism. I, I think that there's glimmers of hope in there, but there's also warning shots that I think we should all be concerned about of like, if this is how citizens feel they can express dissent, it's probably not the right way. Well, I don't know if it's right or not. It's not the, it's not the ide ideal way in a democratic system, right? So okay, I do think we want folks to convene and ch uh, make change, but I, I certainly think that there's a possibility that this trend, um, and it's not just citizens on the street, it's also civil society organizations that are actively organizing uh, and representing citizens' voices. Um, so I do think there's some hope there. Uh, the question is how, we, how they marshal that and how we support them uh, in the process of finding things. But I would definitely argue that there's, there's a democratic decline, there's a potential possibility of hope, uh, but we are a long ways off from that actually becoming a positive uh, step. 
So much to follow up on there. Uh, but first, before we do Radhika, let's turn to South and Central Asia. I wonder if you could, um, the work that you do specifically uh, working with women and, and marginal groups, can you talk about perhaps um, the challenges that you're seeing in your particular region of the world? Anything that, that, that you think we should really reflect on as we, as we move forward in this discussion? Thanks, Delphine, and it's great to be here. Um, you know, I look at, I work on these issues from a slightly different vantage point, which you alluded to, which is looking at women's economic advancement and inclusion as a component of U.S. economic statecraft. So uh, sort of the flip side, perhaps, of Kahindi's point, working with the private sector as actors um, to support women's economic inclusion, which we see as one key indicator for women's participation in the social fabric of their communities and countries. And across South Asia, women account for only around a quarter of their formal economies in which they work. And obviously that has broad repercussions for economic growth and prosperity. And you know what we see as indicators for the capacity for women to really play a role as equal stakeholders in um, the political and social lives of their countries. Central Asia, the countries have higher rates of female labor force participation um, and growing levels of political participation, but some are experiencing a regression in their labor force participation rates. So we're really working on ensuring continued rates of growth of women in the economy um, and, and in higher paying jobs as a priority for fostering not only the continued economic growth of the region, but also fostering stable democracies. They're mutually reinforcing. Thank you. Well, a lot to discuss here. Um, let's move into the area of sort of practice and policy. Uh, you will work in that um, specifically. Um, Yasha, you've written a lot about, or you wrote a wonderful foreign affairs piece quite recently even about how maybe we should be thinking instead about democracy promotion, more about democracy protection, which almost sounds like if I'm not mischaracterizing it, a sort of scaling back of ambition, despite this moment. But at the same time, you've proposed some really bold policies that you see the US or even the European Union could, could, could do to sort of really help with you know, countries that are they're facing this backsliding. Um, I, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that. How do you balance this idea of democracy protection with sort of bold and very clear and concrete initiatives rather than just relying on the rhetoric of, of governments um, or you know, the Biden administration talking about democracy as central to its platform of foreign policy. Um, and forgive me if I've mischaracterized how, how you've, how you've um, laid this out. Well, you may have mischaracterized it when I said that my you know, policy suggestions were exciting and bold. I, I'm, I'm not sure they quite live up to that hype, but uh, other than that, what, what, what you said was exactly right. Um, uh, look, I mean, when you think back to sort of the way I framed the background assumptions about the future of democracy earlier, um, democracy promotion makes a lot of sense in a world in which you think there's a sort of heartland of democracy in which we really don't have to worry about democratic stability. And broadly speaking, uh, we can just assume that we're slowly going to add to the number of countries uh, that are stable democracies. And so the question becomes, if you believe that in fact it is better for people to have a human rights respected and to live under democratic regimes, how can we go around spreading democracy to new parts of the world? And by the way, normatively, I have absolutely no problem with that. Um, if I could flip a switch and turn the whole world democratic, I absolutely would. I think there's an art relativism where people say, well, what if people don't want that? But most of the time, the people don't get a choice. It's the government that is stopping them from being democratic, not the people who wouldn't want democracy. When you look at opinion polls around the world, 
um, people in virtually every country would like to live in a democracy, actually. Um, but um, uh, we have learned how difficult it is to spread democracy. Uh, some of the attempts to do it uh, by the use of military force have failed terribly with, with, with huge costs, but also other ways of trying to uh, encourage uh, uh, movements towards democracy in various countries have not been as effective as we might have hoped in the years of optimism after the fall of the Soviet Union, the Berlin Wall, and the sort of big third wave of democracy you got until the mid-1990s or so. And so I think we should scale down our ambitions, not because there's something wrong with the uh, idea, but because we've learned just how difficult it is to do, and that probably there's not all that much, there's some things we can do, but not all that much we can do to help. Now, at the same time, we're also seeing that some of the uh, strategically most important countries in the world and some of just the most important countries in the world, because they're some of the most populous countries in the world, um, now see the democracy severely threatened. When you think of, you know, Brazil, uh, India, arguably Mexico, Poland, uh, those are some big, important countries uh, whose democratic foundations are being attacked. And so the most urgent thing for those of us who want to preserve democracy for the 21st century is how do we actually make sure that these countries remain democratic? And by the way, geostrategically, that puts any administration, including a well-intentioned administration like one currently occupying the White House, into a real dilemma. Because you want to rein in uh, the autocratic uh, tendencies uh, and, and the growing international influence of China. Well, you kind of need India on your side. But if you need India on your side, can you actually ensure that Narendra Modi does not destroy Indian democratic institutions? That is a real dilemma. And you have the same problem in Europe with Poland and Russia, right? Um, and so I make some suggestions about, about what that actually uh, means in practice. Uh, I don't know how exciting they are, um, uh, but, but I think one of them is that we should distinguish clearly between true partners to the United States that have to be democratic, uh, a kind of level of partnership that should only be accessible to countries that actually are committed to their democracies. Uh, and which countries may lose if they veer away from democracy in the way that Hungary, Poland, India, and other places now are. And the second tier, uh, which still has a strategic partnership because international relations being what they are, America can't afford just to partner with democracies, uh, but which clearly expresses a, a, a lower level of partnership, a lower level of, of alliance um, uh, because those values are not met, because we're dealing with leaders who are actually uh, undermining the democratic systems in their own countries. I think that's one of the things that the Biden administration should consider doing at the upcoming summit of democracies, uh, which I think is in real danger of becoming a technocratic talking shop about 10 different agenda items without any real outcomes. Um, and there's a whole bunch of more granular suggestions in that article as well. Thank you, Yasha. Yeah, the trade-off seems to be a big problem at the foreign policy level. Um, Kehinde and, and Radhika, but Kehinde, starting with you, um, in your current job and previously you've worked directly within the sort of so-called so democracy-promoting institutions, if I may, um, you know, the NDI, National Democratic Institute. I wonder what role you 
see what, what thoughts you have on the role of these sort of democracy promoting institutions, how they can partner with civil society on the ground and, you know, and how you do that. How do you work with civil society actors, reformers, would be pro-democracy or rights activists without compromising them in the eyes of a, a, a nasty regime, should we say, or, or you know, people that can then accuse them of being effectively foreign stooges. Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of my greatest fortunes was not being uh, in a democracy promoted organization during the Trump years. Uh, I think working at an NDI, and I can say that I no longer work there, uh, would have been a very difficult thing when we had uh, our own authoritarian-like leader in the White House. And when we talk about corruption and talk about all these other things that we were actually perpetuating at home as well. So I do think that there's something there, though, of we've seen what the worst of the U.S. could look like. Uh, but, well, I think what the worst of the U.S. could look like. <laughs> I hope what the worst of the U.S. could look like, right? Um, and I think that there's now an opportunity to say we were almost there too, right? And how do we then engage with humility and how do we engage in partnership, right? So like, I think when I was with NDI, like a lot of the work was around how do we bring trainers and how do we sort of think of democratic traditions and how do we help build that? I think NDI and the sort of the, net, the National Democ for Democracy family as a whole, and many of these democracy promoters or assistance providers um, now operate in, I think, a very different way of let's not, we, we're not here to be experts, we're here to collaborate together. And I think that there's a lot more that we can do ourselves uh, as we, the US government can also do to uh, inculcate this idea of we, there's a lot, lot of learning to be done. There's a lot of backsliding that has happened globally. How can we as a world community rekindle this desire for democracy? I think the Summit for Democracies are, uh, as an opportunity uh, to not be so technocratic of like the, what are the nuts and bolts and what are the, the, the five steps to democracy? Because it doesn't work that way, but there are real challenges. And so how do we all roll up our, roll up our sleeves together and say, NDI, how do you support uh, folks in the US and how do you support folks in uh, Kenya? Because like the issues are different, but there certainly are similarities and there are propensities for uh, backslide in both places. Um, so I do think that there's, there's an opportunity there largely created um, by what we saw here in the United States to operate differently and to begin to reimagine what our own assistance uh, could look like and what assistance we need ourselves. And um... Continuing on with that, Radhika, you know, speaking of partnering with local forces, um, civil society, in your work specifically with women's economic inclusion, it's not necessarily immediately obvious how that helps with democratic advancement. Perhaps it could sometimes be seen in conflict or perhaps I'm totally wrong. Could you talk about the connection um, between women's economic inclusion and, and democratic advancement and indeed if that's part of the overall agenda? Thanks, um, Delphine. You know, I, I think some experts may disagree. There's a lot of discussion around this topic, but we really see democratic progress and women's economic participation as being intrinsically linked. If you look at the World Economic Forum's annual ranking of competitiveness that they do um, through their gender parity report, it looks at really building blocks for a healthy democracy and ranking economies. It's access to education, access to healthcare, access to political and economic participation that goes into this composite ranking. So you really can see that, you know, investing in women's economic participation through these different facets uh, can lead to uh, competitiveness, but also the building blocks of democracy and the civil society uh, that we all wanna see in free and open uh, countries. Uh, more broadly, women's economic empowerment can help reduce a country's income inequality, and that's a key contributor 
to democratic instability among a myriad uh, setbacks for democratic progress from political polarization to an erosion of social cohesion and trust in democracy and an economy with high levels of inequality um, in those economies, you tend to see that people at the bottom tend to lack options to both gain wealth and participate in the political system. We know that gender parity in the economy, so removing the discrimination that holds women back can add $28 trillion to the global economy and put resources into the hands of women. Um, women vote with their pocketbooks and they make consumer decisions that affect marketplaces. Um, their investments in children and families improves health and education outcomes. And that paves the way for greater development and prosperity. It's a virtuous circle. Um, the Bush School of Government and Public Service came out in January with a study where they highlighted that you know, societies that recognize the value and protect women's economic participation, so access to inheritance, social and land rights, tend to strengthen good governance and accountability, all decreasing the risk of democratic backsliding. Of course, there's a lot that needs to be done to enshrine and enforce these rights in countries around the world and including sadly in South and Central Asia. So, you know, one critical corollary to these efforts that we're working on is um, women's political participation. Um, and unfortunately in South Asia, it's the only region in the world where over the past two decades, the average number of women parliamentarians has remained stagnant at around 20% after peaking between 2009 to 2012. And as of two years ago, it had the second lowest, lowest share of women parliamentarians of all regions. Um, the World Bank has highlighted that countries with a higher share of women representatives at national and subnational levels of government tend to have more laws that equalize opportunities and benefits between women and men, um, girls and boys. And those are all really critical to not only addressing labor force participation rates across the region, but also those precursors to um, civil civic engagement and democratic progress. Thanks very much. Um, it's about time to open up for questions. I'm just going to take the liberty of asking one more of <laughs> many more. Um, I wonder, as you know, I'm a journalist, I spend a lot of time on the ground in, in places where what I encounter, particularly in Mexico, Central America these days is the buzzwords are even less about democracy, more about corruption and impunity. And I wonder how much we've considered, I mean, Kehinde and, and, and Radhika, and as you've all three of you have alluded to this, you know, the need to sort of deal with uh, rule of law and inept governments and, and the perception of, of that. Um, have we thought enough about how to incorporate anti-corruption initiatives into the advancement of democracy abroad? I mean, the Biden administration has said this is a key national security interest now, but at the same time, there have been very clear uh, anti-corruption setbacks in the last four years. Um, so maybe to you first, Yasha, and then Kendan, and Radhika quickly, and then we open up. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and of course, sometimes there's a tension between democracy promotion and uh, corruption, at least in the short term, which is to say that the democratic leaders you have in certain very unstable democracies are deeply corrupt, and that makes it very hard for those democracies to take root. Um, but they're also often the only people you have. That's the dilemma that we faced in Afghanistan. Um, and that's in many ways the dilemma we still face in countries like Iraq and elsewhere. Um, and of course, you know, it's easy and right to say that, well, actually in the long run, getting rid of corruption is exactly what you need to do in order to stabilize democracy. And that's absolutely true. Um, but, you know, as John Maynard Keynes said in the realm of economics, in the long run, we're all dead. And sometimes if you refuse to support the, the democratic leader you have because they're corrupt, you may end up with, with no democracy at all. So it's very hard to know what to do in those situations. Um, 
But generally speaking, um, you know, corruption and more generally a, a, a lack of output legitimacy, a lack of governments delivering for people in their everyday lives is a big reason why democracies become unstable, why people particularly uh, end up voting for authoritarian populists. Uh, and the really uh, perverse thing about it is that all of those people run on a anti-corruption platform. They say, hey, the system is completely corrupt. You should sweep out all these old guard of politicians because they're all terrible. And by the way, that's often right in many countries of the world. But of course, the people who are then elected on these anti-corruption platforms often turn out to be even more corrupt. And in a study that I did with my colleague, Jordan Kyle, uh, we found, for example, uh, that actually uh, countries ruled by authoritarian populists become more corrupt once they take power, even for virtually all of them campaign on an anti-corruption platform. So, uh, you know, should we make anti-corruption absolutely crucial plank of America's engagement abroad? And is it related uh, to democracy promotion? Absolutely. What that means in practice and how to actually root out corruption is a really, really difficult question. And since uh, all of you, we have wonderful 250 or something participants, this is amazing, and you're all very talented. So I have not yet read a good book on this, and one of you should go and write it. And that is, you know, what do the countries have in common that actually had really effective anti-corruption drives? You know, there's, there's a few examples of those in the 20th century, and really not all that many. Um, what did those countries have in common? Why did it work in those places and fail in so many others? I have not read the definitive book on that, um, so perhaps one of you should write it. <laughs> Great challenge. Kehinde, do you, do you want to briefly address this? Um, certainly, uh, you, you talked about it in the Nigerian context. Um, yeah, absolutely. So I think uh, corruption is, I think Yash is right, it's complicated, but corruption is a huge part of this puzzle, right? And I think what we haven't quite figured out is how do we support homegrown uh, opportunities to address corruption rather than the, the US government saying to you address corruption and here are the five ways to do it, right? I think that until we start to have these conversations and folks understanding their own systems address corruption, we won't get there. And if we think of elite capture as one of the biggest drivers of um, corruption uh, and elite capture is one of the biggest reasons for democratic backsliding uh, and corruption as a driver of conflict, like it has so many different tentacles uh, for those of us that are in the peace building world, those of us that are in the democracy and governance world, like there's just corruption is a common theme for all of us, right? So, but how we address it, I think is a thing that we haven't yet figured out. Um, I will also say that I think the trade-off that we've often made is also the, uh, we want to support security sector uh, across the globe because we think that's one way to fight terrorism. That's, there's another thing there of like then the that those who are capturing that, those funds, those who are capturing those uh, equipment and resources, um, because we're not focusing on governance, um, we end up focusing on like supporting the wrong people uh, who then use their the guns to attack their own people. So there's a virtuous, uh, unvirtuous cycle that we create if we don't really address corruption, but I don't think we've figured out quite well, quite rightly how to focus on corruption and have homegrown solutions to addressing corruption. Um, and Radhika, just briefly, because I really should open this up to questions now, but um, given that you work with the private sector, um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the role of the private sector and civil society and perhaps in looking towards corruption and addressing this kind of thing. Uh, certainly, um, I do work with the private sector and civil society quite a bit. I think Delphine and I, when we first talked about this session, I, I related a little bit about how I came into the State Department at a time when Secretary Clinton called, you know, what she called the participation age, where we looked at inclusion broadly as critical to economic growth. And 
Um, I feel like I might be veering away from some of the good comments that my fellow panelists have made, but it really required looking beyond, you know, necessarily high level government to government um, engagement to accomplish our goal, really looking to civil society and companies to start being real partners in efforts to bolster economic growth. And that's where, you know, it became typical for us to organize high level events with women civil society leaders and sort of at the time I joined the State Department, that sort of raised a lot of eyebrows. It wasn't typical, um, but really seeing that it's time to widen the aperture on who we're meeting with in order to really accomplish the goals and objectives that we have. And um, I think I can offer that through the U.S. Pakistan Women's Council, which I've been running for the past two years. That's uh, a critical vector of all the work that we do, working with our corporate members and civil society. And we just launched an analogous effort in India last week. Um, Samantha Power, Administrator Power, did uh, the U.S.-India Alliance for Women's Economic Empowerment. And it really allows us to reach you know, beyond uh, what might be the... Um, the restrictions that we have as U.S. government um, audiences and individuals around in the countries that we work in. So I will stop there because I know we're short on time. Yeah, it's really interesting in terms of not just working with the status quo, but empowering forces at the grassroots, say. Or um, Right, well, at this time, and I'm a little late, my apologies, uh, I would like to invite the audience to join our conversation with their questions. Uh, a reminder that this meeting is on the record and the operator will remind you how to join the question queue. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, as a reminder to ask a question, please click on the raise hand icon on your Zoom window. When you are called on, please accept the unmute now button and then proceed with your name, affiliation, and question. And as a reminder, this meeting is on the record. We will take the first question from Martial Kumbari. Uh, please remember to state your affiliation. Hi, good, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, Marshall Kambari with Nuveen Investment, currently with Metris Energy, focus on decarbonization. Um, I guess I have a two-pronged approach. Uh, my first question is around um, some of the critics that said that um, democracy shouldn't be the highest goal of governance in the sense that it is clearly better than, you know, any type of dictatorial regime or monarchies. But there needs to be some type of injection of meritocracy um, when it comes to free and fair election. Uh, what is your response to that? And, and then from a follow-up perspective, how do you think the govern, you know, when you think about democracy, you know, a, a regime for off the people, by the people, for the people, how should they feel when we have recent release like the Pandora paper and, you know, following of the Panama paper, how does that factor in? And should there be a little bit more uh, accountability? Who wants to take that? Yasha, Kehinde. <laughs> Great questions. Yasha? Uh, sure, I'm happy to. Um, uh, look, I'm, first of all, I think meritocracy is very important. It's very fashionable to beat up on meritocracy. Michael Sandel, my doctoral advisor, uh, has a book very ably beating up on meritocracy. Um, and I think that's a real mistake. Um, you know, he's right to identify a certain self-satisfied and smug uh, attitude among, frankly, and, you know, all of you, I'm afraid to say count, uh, elites like us. Uh, you know, I think Michael is right to say it's very easy to feel like, hey, you've risen because you've worked really hard and you got into the right colleges and you do a good job. And so you deserve 
the sort of uh, relatively nice position that we all in one way or another have and that many of you will uh, achieve even more in the next years. Um, and so therefore, you know, to the victor goes the spoils and let's not have be too worried about the rest of society. Let's feel that we deserve where we're at. Um, I think it's right to criticize that. Um, and uh, in, in that sense, the sort of system of, oh, I've, I've, I've succeeded because of merit, even if perhaps sometimes I got lucky in various ways. Um, so therefore, let me not worry too much about the others, uh, or let me even look down on the people who haven't succeeded in the right way. All of that is worthy of, of real criticism. But if you look around the world, um, if you know countries well, like, like Hinda knows uh, Nigeria very well, even a place that works relatively better, like Italy, that I know very well, where young people don't feel like they work really hard and they really achieve, they're going to be able to get ahead. That is terrible for the people in those societies. And it is terrible for those societies because uh, they are not using the best talent. People don't have an incentive to cultivate their talents. Um, and all of that is disastrous for economic growth and other things. But I think in that sense, uh, democracy and meritocracy tend to go together. It is the alternatives to democracy that are even more anti-meritocratic in which it is even more the case that the noble families or the well-connected families or the families that are part of a ruling tribe or whatever else it may be, uh, get to have all of the important positions in society. And those who happen to be born into the wrong position are not able uh, to, to achieve. And so I think there, the answer within democracies is let's make our countries more meritocratic than they are, not give up on the ideal of meritocracy. Now, obviously uh, it is a problem that sometimes you end up with terrible leaders in a democracy, right? Often. You look at the choice of your fellow citizens, you think, my God, that guy, seriously? Um, but you know, you look at countries that have any other form of government and uh, they tend to be very poor as well. Um, Aristotle said that you know, if one person is preeminent, they should rule. But you know, how do we make sure that person actually rules? In a monarchy, it's a genetic lottery. And sometimes you're lucky and a monarch actually is pretty smart and does well, but most of the time on average, I think they end up being uh, a lot worse than the leaders that democracy should would pick. So um, there's a little bit of a tension there. Um, democracy doesn't work great, but I think it is better than the alternatives. And very briefly to your other question, yes, of course, we need better accountability for democratic leaders. Uh, we need to uh, close the revolving door between uh, policy positions and private industry. We need to make sure that um, people with real political power don't end up selling out. Um, I'm currently in Germany, uh, the uh, still at this point last German chancellor, because Angela Merkel is still in office, uh, Gerhard Schröder is now a member of the board of Gazprom, uh, a Russian state energy firm. Uh, that is an outrage. Um, and these sort of things should not happen. We need to find laws to prohibit them and forms of accountability uh, uh, to punish people. Uh, uh, yes. Yep. One point I would just add is just around, I think for democracies to actually deliver, um, this, the inclusion of marginalized population and ethnic minorities is a, is a key piece, right? So we certainly need to have 
everyone, I agree meritocracy is important, but it's also this who is part of government and who's part of the system, right? Not just who's in leading, but who's actually has a voice. And I think in many countries, in too many countries, the uh, marginalization of people has become a tool of their of authoritarians. And I think that that's part of this uh, puzzle that we need to figure out as well. Um, and I also think, uh, Delphine, you talked at the beginning about this, like, the loss of faith in elites and the loss of faith in democratic systems. I think the, the Pandora Papers are a good example of why that continues to exist, right? So until we begin to close these loopholes um, and acknowledge our role in the West of like being the havens for uh, a lot of wealth that is pillaged uh, in the developing countries that many of us work in, uh, we are just we're sort of going in circles. And the, the corruption question that we asked a few minutes ago can be turned back to us and say, well, one of the ways that we are fueling corruption um, at, from home uh, and actually hurting democracies or developing countries that are trying to become more democratic. Um, so I do think that there is something between this elite capture um, and this Pandora Papers and the, the loss of faith in democratic systems uh, as well. Thank you. Let's move on to the next question. We will take our next question from Rafaela Sophie. Sure. Uh, thank you for uh, your comments thus far. I just recently graduated from Harvard College in Social Studies, now at the London School of Economics, um, and most recent affiliation with the Deutsche Bundesbank in Frankfurt. So my question is regarding the spillover effects of big tech action in the US 2020 election. So I'm sort of interested in your thoughts on how big tech intervention in the election influenced sort of broadly on a global scale the approach to uh, democracy. So many experts have attribute uh, Xi Jinping's crackdown um, on big tech to sort of the reaction to Twitter's action to President Trump. So sort of you could always also draw connections to um, Nigeria and their crackdown on Twitter. So any comments on that, I'd really appreciate. Yeah, thank you very much. Okay, Hindi, you want to take that? Um, I can. I'm, I'm not sure that I'm the best equipped for this. Um, and I'm actually going to channel my friend, Rose Jackson, who's at the Atlantic Council's DFR lab here. That I think part of the, what we've seen the last, uh, at least with our elections, and I think there's a desire and a need for the US to actually speak with human rights values, right? And to say, we don't just want to counter China and we don't want to just counter like or counter sort of technology, uh, counter the authoritarian use of technologies, but more so how do we actually create systems and create a framework for technology to be used and to be used affirmatively um, and speak with our own values in this regard. So okay, I think that the what we saw with Facebook or with uh, yeah, the social media takeover of, of our elections is like those things are they can happen here too, right? So how do we begin to think of creating a structure or creating a frame, like I said before, a framework for addressing these things? Um, I But yeah, I don't really have, unfortunately, I'm not a tech person uh, or have, I've not studied this enough to have fully formed thoughts. It's just initial, I guess. Well, perhaps if I can just 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 add one thing there, because I think I I I may share what I am detecting as Raphael's sort of premise in the question, um, which is to say that it's very tempting to say, hey, let's intervene, let's uh, ban political figures who act in a deeply irresponsible way, uh, let's suppress uh, an article in the New York Post that we believe not to be factual, um, but it's really really dangerous. Um, it's really dangerous, first of all. Uh, because uh, it's doubtful whether we should give that much power over our collective public discourse 
uh, to a few people in Silicon Valley that don't really, but aren't subject to any form of democratic accountability. I find it really striking that I had long debates with my uh, friends on the left four or five years ago about net neutrality and that it would be an absolute disaster to give uh, you know, private companies the power to give higher speed to video than to text because it could somehow be used for these companies to influence public discourse. And now many of those same people are shouting for uh, Facebook and Twitter to uh, discriminate between this politician should be able to speak and this politician should not be able to speak in a way that to me raises far greater risks about them potentially uh, influencing our public discourse in, in bad ways. Now, in this particular case, uh, I was a very staunch opponent of Mr. Trump and I was very much hoping for Mr. Biden to win. And, it, you know, broadly speaking, I think what Twitter and Facebook did uh, helped the side that I was in favor of. But uh, it is very naive to think that that will always be the case or that Facebook and Twitter and other tech giants may not use uh, the power to censor people uh, uh, in order to, for example, defeat attempts to rein in the power if that becomes a realistic uh, prospect in the future. And then uh, the second thing is uh, that in this whole discourse about misinformation and disinformation, uh, you need to be able to assume that the prevailing wisdom always will know what is in fact misinformation and disinformation. And it's telling that one of the first big topics to which it was applied was debates about the origin of the current pandemic. Um, and the prevailing wisdom of it has shifted in such a way that ideas which were very heavily censored on Facebook and YouTube and other platforms are now taken seriously at the highest level of the US government. So that shows us the danger of that. And then thirdly, as Raphael was implying, um, it makes it very easy for Rotarians around the world to say, well, yeah, we may be banning the leader of your opposition, but, you know, that's just what you did. This person is a terrorist or this person is inciting violence or this person is doing whatever, you know, spurious charge. We are just doing exactly the same thing that you guys were doing domestically in your country. Now, that may be in bad faith, but it makes it very, very difficult to counter. And that, I think, does provide a fig leaf uh, for 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 town leaders around the world in a way that also worries me. Yeah, yes, I'm just going to second that because I, you know, in, in countries that are not democracies, the question of freedom of expression is barely <laughs> is still a huge challenge. So social media regulating it comes within that larger discussion. I think. Um, let's move on to another question. Our next question will be from Marissa Carden Weber. Hi, thank you so much. Um, I'm Marissa. I'm an attorney with Harishi and Associates in DC, uh, and I practice international criminal and human rights law. And I'm also a legal consultant on transitional justice issues. So going to Delphine's last question on corruption, um, I agree with something I think all panelists alluded to about the a difficult balance between the international community building up capacity of civil society uh, and homegrown solutions uh, with the international community not knowing when to take a step back at times and maybe having uh, an adverse effect on democracy fortifying efforts. So I'm curious uh, whether it's in uh, economic growth initiatives or rule of law efforts, uh, I'm wondering how you identify in your own work how to kind of toe this line. Um, yeah, thank you very much. Anecdotes uh, appreciated. <laughs> and who wants to say this? 
Kehinde, I feel like throwing this to you again. <laughs> I was actually curious where Ruth got things on this one. It's a really um, excellent question. And it's something that we're very mindful of because in so many ways, uh, women's issues can be instrumentalized by different political parties um, in one way or the other. You know, we see in some countries they've become in the political sphere equated uh, with a Western agenda and us advancing women's empowerment therefore becomes advancing the interests of the United States. And then in other situations, um, you know, having a negative impact because opposition, uh, though they may be very much in favor of gender equality, don't want us to, um, you know, they come out against women's empowerment, not because they're against the issues, but because they're against the political party that happens to be working with us on um, something. So it's something that um, I can say, as I know you asked for specific anecdotes, which I can't unfortunately provide um, in this forum, but, you know, it's, there's a political economy in which we're working and being mindful of that and being mindful of the interests that um, being mindful of the interests that our, our work on women's empowerment might hurt the easy, the way we work around that is by working with the local actors and making sure that it's not the United States interests that we're putting forward, but really longstanding advocates for these issues. Um, and that's um, sort of one way that we've sort of gotten around that um, very issue, but it's a real one and it hurts women when we don't um, keep that in mind. Thanks. Yeah, and one example I would offer, so when I was at a partner school, but we had a State Department funding to do some corruption work um, in Nigeria and in Sierra Leone. Uh, and so we went in thinking, okay, so let's help people understand the cost of corruption. And we said, okay, we'll focus on passports because clearly everybody needs a passport. And what the uh, partners in Nigeria said to us is, only a sliver of people in Nigeria use passports because most of them can't afford to fly out of the country, right? So like, I think just even that understanding alone of like, how do we focus and where do we help enough people understand, right? And so what we ended up doing was focusing on driver's licenses and the corruption around driver's licenses, because as it turns out, Nigeria has 120 million people or maybe more now, uh, majority of them that are over a certain age, like drive and they want efficiency. And for that efficiency, they pay a premium, right? And so if you actually help people understand by paying this premium, there are, alter there are consequences in the long run. And that trickles down to sort of like the bribe that you pay to the police officer on the ground um, while trying to drive between like from one state to another state, right? And I think then extrapolating upward of like, if we look at driver's license corruption, how do we think about like, okay, so if it's not driver's licenses, you'll pay for other forms, all these other things that you do, they add up over time, right? So like, I think in those, in that example, or in that uh, course of those three years, we didn't end corruption in Nigeria, as I think you all would imagine, uh, but we certainly were able to help people understand that there, there is a cost to corruption and that there these consequences individuals are part of. So it's not just this idea of, of course, we should all talk about the fact that the police commissioner is embezzling money. That's a problem itself, right? We don't want to only focus on the, uh, but we don't only want to focus on that. And then we can talk about what are the individual actors and the roles that they play as citizens uh, towards uh, the corrupt environment that exists, right? Uh, while also making sure that we do want to, uh, I create accountability upward, but that it's, a, it's sort of like, it, there's a parallel process that happens and we all can be complicit in that process. Uh, and then the elites take advantage of that process by, because we are all co-opted in that process. Let's take another question. Our next question will be from Shahid Naim. Mr. Naeem, if you can uh, 
unmute yourself now. Hello, sorry, I'm on my phone. Can you hear me now? Yes, great. Thanks so much for having us. Um, I'm, my name is Shahid, I'm a policy analyst with Economic Liberties, which is an economic policy think tank. Um, I wanted to kind of continue on this theme of loss of faith in democracy and giving public power to private corporations. For the panelists, I'm very curious what role you see the role of consolidated corporate power playing in this push-pull on democratic institutions that we're talking about. Um, I think we've all seen, you know, a growing economic and political power amassed by our largest corporations. We're able to kind of defy regulation, block legislation that people actively want and need. Um, you know, the Facebook hearings today, touching on Facebook's role in ethnic cleansing in Myanmar, the Ethiopian civil war, um, and then other things like, you know, two thirds of Americans want the government to do more on things like climate, which is a global existential threat, but electeds have trouble delivering against energy giants with deep financial investments in oil and gas that translate to political power. So I think essentially what I'm asking is, what role do you think checking corporate power should play in rebuilding global trust in democracy? Thank you. Good question. Radhika, do you want to take this? Well, I think there's two aspects to this. One is fostering accountability, and the second is building pro uh, constructive avenues for partnership. I mean, one thing that I, ha I have to say is like, if you're talking about economic growth, for instance, um, and I'm going to defer to Kinde and Yasha on sort of um, the regulatory aspect of your question. Um, those, you know, economic growth, it's not something that the government alone can accomplish. You need the private sector uh, to, to advance those goals and priorities. And the United States doesn't control its private sector. I mean, that's one aspect of a healthy functioning democracy also. Um, so I think creating the boundaries around healthy partnership, I'm, uh, I think it's actually pretty critical. And I do think that the US government has a pretty robust framework in order to accomplish um, public-private partnerships. So I guess I might be the sole voice for advocacy around, um, you know, the private sector as a partner in these efforts, though I'm not, uh, I'm not unaware of the need to regulate and uh, have strong accountability. So on that, those two questions, I, I want to turn to Kende and Yasha. Kende, Yasha, want to add anything? Just very briefly, I'll, I'll, I'll make myself, you know, since Radhika uh, uh, graciously volunteered to make herself unpopular, I'll try and also make myself unpopular. Um, I, I think, um, look, I agree with you absolutely, but we need better accountability of, of, of large corporations, I think, in particular when it comes to things like uh, both legal and illegal tax evasion. Um, you know, the, the true scandal uh, is all the legal stuff that large corporations do to say, hey, all of our profits come from our intellectual property and our intellectual property so happens to live in Bermuda or wherever it may be. And so there's nothing you can do. Um, we absolutely need to take on that concentrated power. I also think it's very easy to blame corporations for things whose roots are much deeper. I'm a real skeptic that if Facebook disappeared tomorrow, as it did for a few hours yesterday, um, it would make any difference in the world. I think that, um, uh, you know, these social media uh, conversations are largely driven by where people's passions are at and how people feel much more so than by the particular regulatory regime or the particular framework, the particular design of these social media platforms. I think it's very easy to say it's Facebook's fault when all the content on it is terrible, but really that's because that's what a lot of people are sharing and clicking on and uh, uh, so on. And so I think it's it's, we're making it too easy on ourselves to say, hey, this is about those corporations. 
And when it comes to things like climate change, I think there's been some really interesting polling on that, where yes, you're right, two thirds of Americans say we want action on climate change. And only about one third of Americans say they're willing to pay $100 in tax for it a year. So, uh, you know, yes, absolutely, there are big corporations with a stake in this who are trying to stop certain forms of climate legislation. But honestly, I think we're deluding ourselves if we think that there's a real grassroots demand for action on climate change that has a cost. Um, and, and that is not just uh, propaganda or something like that. That's that the argument about climate change still hasn't sunk in to the minds of the average voter, neither in the United States nor in Germany, where the Green Party was supposed to win and so on, and young people are supposed to push it to um, a victory. And it turns out that among first-time voters in Germany nine days ago, it was the center-right FDP that came first, not the Green Party. So I think, um, yes, you're right that, that we need accountability for corporations, but I think the problems go a little bit deeper than that. Kendo, want to add some final words? And then unfortunately, I think we have to close out. Yeah, I would just, I, I think I would echo both of those. I think I'm somewhere in between Radhika and Yasha. I do think corporate accountability is necessary. Uh, and I think governments have to play a role in regulating that. Uh, but I think Yasha is absolutely right. We can't, that's not the solution. That corporate corporations reflect society. And so until we figure out how to sort of like balance those two things, um, I don't think we're going to solve that. Uh, but I do believe accountability is a necessary component for sure. Thanks so much. Unfortunately, it's CFR. We end completely on time and I'm already two minutes over. So I'm afraid um, we'll have to continue this discussion in other forums with CFR. Thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you especially to Yasha Monk, Radhika Prabhu and Kehinde Togun. Um, and please note that the video and transcript of today's meeting will be posted on CFR's website. For more event audio, subscribe on iTunes or visit us at CFR.org.